Californians and rain, man. I think a train derailment had just been mentioned. Oh, window still. Whatever. What will happen? What will we do? Folks, it'll be okay. We won't melt. That's the Wizard of Oz. We're human beings. God made us amazingly durable even in rain. How are you guys doing? Yeah? Yeah? Me too. This passage is something else. There's not a richer passage in all of Philippians than what we're looking at today. And in a moment of self-disclosure, I've been talking to God since last night and quite a bit this morning of really just how little I understand it. I'm not nearly as prepared as I should be, and my heart and mind can't get around all that is in this passage. It's absolutely amazing what Philippians 2 tells us about Jesus. You won't, you may understand what the Bible says, you'll spend the rest of your life, and I think personally probably the rest of eternity, getting your heart and mind around all that it means. Because Jesus is a person. He's not a math fact that can be known and settled, and that's all that there is to know, and that's it. He's a person. And in this passage, we're going to scale up to some heights, heights so great that scholars who have studied this their whole lives and centuries of human, of Christian study and prayer and devotional reflection over this passage, even with all of that, the brightest minds and the best, most loyal hearts in Christianity still haven't completely understood and agreed about everything this passage means. But all of that theological richness has a very practical purpose. And if you marvel at Jesus and you marvel at the depths of this theology in this particular passage, and you don't walk out with the practical application, which is part of your existence like it is of mine, every single moment of my life, this passage in all of its beauty is aimed right at the center of my heart. Because in my heart like yours, there's a battle that rages every single day, and Jesus wants to be king of it. Over 10 years ago, my wife became very sick when we were missionaries in Mexico. It was a tough thing for a couple of reasons. For one, the name of her particular illness was a bacterial infection with the unfortunate name of brucellosis. It's true. Anybody ever heard of it? No American has, because we've eradicated it in this country. And a good friend of mine, as my wife literally struggled for life, said, well, bro, she's been exposed to the source for over 20 years. Of course she was going to get... My wife's struggling for life, okay? Can we can the jokes? Dr. Bruce discovered this dread bacteria and named it after himself, which is a curious thing to do. I'd name a disease like that after my enemies, not after myself, but there you are. She became so sick, they also call it undulant fever or Malta fever. And it's the kind of illness where a bacteria starts growing inside a person, and it makes them sick and feverish at night, and then in the morning it kind of pulls back, and they feel much better. 
And we didn't know any better. We'd never, frankly, heard of it either. So all of these high fevers at night and the illness, that was a warning. Her system was being attacked. Her immune systems were being overcome by this bacteria, which was actually one of the world's first biological weapons. I mean, it's serious business. And when it finally crushed what remained of her defenses and she had to go to the hospital, for a long time the doctors didn't know what was wrong. Her immune system was so devastated that she actually had all kinds of accompanying infections as she was exposed to things as we all are. And they had no idea. The doctor's chart, I had a friend read it, said in his handwriting, words that made me feel cold, he wrote, we are searching for a hidden cancer. And they did bone marrow tests and more blood panels and cultures than I can imagine. And they finally settled on this infection, and then with the marvel of antibiotics and a lot of time and a lot of prayer, she got better. But for a long time, we didn't know what it was, and I have absolutely no medical training, but I am analytical and curious by nature, and her doctor was very engaging, very warm guy, so he could tell that it would help me to do some reading, so he opened up his medical library to me and sent me articles, and that was the worst thing I ever did. It was very humbling because I discovered in reading about all the different things that it could be based on this particular cluster of symptoms, I realized for the first time just how wonderfully intricate our bodies are. There are countless systems that all have to operate at the same time and cooperate with one another. And most of us call that health, and we call it good, and it's a wonderful thing to get up every day with all of those intricate systems humming quietly inside of you. And an untold number of cells, each doing what they should, not turning against each other, not mutating, systems not fighting one another. And you and I call that health, and most of us have enjoyed it most of our lives, and we don't think much about it. And the only reason that works, the only reason you've enjoyed what life and health you have is because all those systems are working together in a beautiful biological unity. And if only one of those systems starts to fail, you feel crushed, you feel lost, you may die. And you know, it's the same in the church. Paul has been writing from prison to the single Christian church that had the wisdom and the love to come alongside him and support him. He said in chapter 1, verse 5, that he prayed with joy and gratitude for them every time he thought of them. He said, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, the moment you heard about Jesus, you linked arms and hearts with me and you became my partners. And they did. And not just in name, they sent him money. They sent him a man from the church to serve Paul in prison. They did everything a single congregation could to come alongside Paul, support him, make sure he was fed, make sure he could travel. They did everything a church could do to make sure that the gospel spread. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he appeals to them that that unity would continue. Look in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live up to this good news, in other words. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing. Look at this language. It's all about unity. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, 
with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity. Unity in a church. It may be that unity in a church is harder to achieve than it is in a human body. We're going to be a little self-reflective and self-evaluative as a church family. In your Christian experience here or at other churches, have you noticed that Christian churches are always unified? They always have one heart, one mind. Everybody's on the same page. Has that been your experience? Why are you laughing, folks? It's in the Bible. It's what we should be doing. Has that not been your experience? No, mine either. That's why chapter 2 was written. Paul is going to continue to make a very practical, pointed appeal for unity in the Philippian church. When he started the letter, he said, I'm writing to all the saints, in other words, all the believers that are there, their pastors, their deacons. I'm getting my heart and mind around the whole church, and I thank God for you that you've partnered with me to spread the good news of Jesus. Here's my continued appeal. Make sure that you who have been given citizenship in the kingdom and the family of God, live up to it. And keep your heart and your mind together. Keep one purpose among you. Don't go off in every direction. And in Philippians chapter 2, he's going to make a very practical appeal for unity. And what we're going to read is easily read and lived with much more difficulty. If you take this passage seriously, I've tried to, and it's, it's really humbled me this week. First of all, how little I can actually get my mind around this magnificent book. And that's because it tells me of a magnificent Savior that I'll spend the rest of eternity getting to know. And if the more you know Jesus, really, truly, if you don't know Him, let me put it to you simply like this. To know Him really is to love Him. And the longer you walk with Him, if you pay attention, the better and better you discover that He is. And that's why this appeal for unity not for one another, but unity for Him is so practical. Read with me in Philippians 2 verse 1. You'll see what I mean. He, Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, who's he writing to again? This isn't a married couple, this is a church. A married couple would be hard enough, this is a church. And he starts with some ifs. Did you notice? If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, why did he say if? Aren't all of those things true? Don't we find encouragement in Christ? Don't we have comfort from His love? Don't we participate in the Spirit? If you're a Christian, don't you find affection and sympathy from Jesus and from others? Well, yes, you do. Why does Paul say if? In family terms, he's laying it on thick because he has a huge request to make. He's talking like parents sometimes do. My mother once said to me, if I've ever meant anything to you at all, oh. Oh, man, what's she going to ask for? Because i got to do it, right? I'm going to shave my head, move to India. What's it going to be, Mom? When you frame it like that, if I've meant anything to you at all, here's what I want. Parents sometimes make these appeals when it means a lot to them. 
Paul has just told them, you have heard the gospel, you've loved it, you've partnered with me, you've been the only ones who have stood with me. Now, let me make a very practical appeal. Since in Christ you have encouragement, you have the love of God and the comfort of His love, you have all of these good things that these two verses tell us. You have participation in the Spirit. You have affection and sympathy. If you have those things and those things mean anything to you, here's what I want you to do because of it. In other words, cross point, if Jesus means anything to us at all, Paul has an appeal to make. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That's four phrases to say the same thing. Be unified. Stick together. Don't go off in your own chosen directions. And that's hard. That's why church life is difficult sometimes. If you're new to church and maybe edging back into it and Christians disappoint you all the time and you're looking particularly at Christian leaders saying, man, if that's what being a Christian is all about, I don't want any part of it. If that's been part of your experience, let me tell you, that's sad, but it's normal. Because every human person carries inside themselves from birth a dynamic, an unquenchable hunger, a drive to be king or queen of their own little life. Every human being on earth. I'll prove it. You ever met a two-year-old? What's the first thing two-year-olds learn to say? No. And a close second is mine. Yep, it's amazing. The 9 o'clock service said the exact same thing. And I've asked that question in half a dozen countries, very different cultures from our own. They all say the same thing. As soon as children have the faculty of language, they say to people who are six times their size, no. I won't. Oh, woman who brought me into the world, <laughs> whose very body sustains me and formed me? No, I won't. You can't make me. The old joke of I'm standing up on the inside. You heard that? Child was made to sit down. He finally did. And he said, I'm standing up on the inside. That's human nature. They say no, and they say mine. And those are appeals to kingship and queenship. I'll run my life. Thank you very much. And your whole life, that two-year-old is growing up with the hope very early, by the time they're five or six, when I'm big, I will call the shots. They only treat me this way because I'm little. They don't have enough resources to uh, go out on my own, but soon I will. Then they find out it's overrated, but that's another topic and another story. <laughs> Every human heart says, this is mine. I am my own. I know best. I will do things my own way. That's why what Paul is asking for is a miracle. He is asking that they think the same way, that they feel the same way, that they act the same way, that they keep the same purpose. I like the way the Holman Christian Bible translated that verse. It says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feeling, focusing on one goal. No wonder church life can be difficult. No wonder Christians are routinely disappointed by other Christians. If we are to be one in heart, feeling, purpose, mind, and we act the way we actually do, 
No wonder it's hard. The real question is, how in the world are we ever going to achieve this? Because listen, the, the church is a unique place. The, nurtures, the church is one of the very few organizations, perhaps the only one trying to get its arms around as many as four or five generations at a single time and make them love one another so that they consider that the other person's interests are more important than their own. Do you have any idea how hard that is? How contrary to our own sinful, selfish little nature? I don't know if you've noticed this, but older people tend to be set in their ways. Have you noticed? And they like things the way they have been. And by golly, they helped build this thing, so why are we changing anything? And then come young people who understand that old people in their heart are people who have given up on their dreams. And the gray hair is the dust of those crushed dreams. But now with youthful vision and energy, they see a fresh vision of God and they understand really what Jesus wants. And if only these old fogies would get out of their way with their hide-bound ways, we could get something done around here. Have you ever felt that dynamic in the heart of a church? I want to go wherever you go to church, buddy. I have. Ten years I've been the pastor here. What brings me the greatest joy in all of it is how I've seen people of multiple generations understand what this passage says next. When I see people who are in their 80s who can't begin to understand the rhythm of a modern song, who grew up on two grand pianos and a pipe organ and a pastor in a suit, who think to themselves deep at the cellular level, if they hit that drum one more time, I'm out of here. <laughs> when I see those people in their 80s try to sing music that makes no sense to them and sometimes tear up because they see kids 50, 60 years younger than they are with their hands up and their hearts raised up to God and they say that swallowing their preference is worth it, because more people are experiencing the same Savior they love, that brings me joy like you can't even begin to imagine. I hope I don't, but I could die happy having witnessed that. When I see younger people who are not only tolerant of their elders, but actually come to appreciate their wisdom and understand that staying with a single congregation with all of its faults, flaws, sins, and failures from the leadership right on down to the nursery and staying in that one place and serving through all of those storms is wisdom and faithfulness and loyalty that is to be admired and revered and imitated. When I see a 14-year-old kid that gets that and is investing himself already in students who have special needs or very young children to whom he can support when he could be in here singing the songs he loves in the first place, I see what Paul's talking about here. But this is the constant challenge to make no differences regarding class or education, to look across racial boundaries, because really the church is the only place that is trying to encompass people who have nothing in common except one person, Jesus. And when Jesus knits that unity into 
his body of which he is the head and makes us as different and diverse and broken as we were when we came to him into a single purposeful organism, one body with one heart, one mind, one goal. It's the most beautiful thing on earth. And you won't regret, I promise, when you meet Jesus in heaven and you see him in the flesh that he assumed for you so that he could go to the cross and die there for you, you won't regret a moment of love, of giving, of sacrifice, of humility that you gave to others in His name. And that's exactly what Paul wants them to to do. Look down in verse 3 again. He says, do nothing. Here's how we achieve this unity. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Well, already I'm in trouble. Rivalry means to compete. Conceit means to impress. I don't know if you've noticed, but people care about that too. People compete, and people position their lives to impress. And Paul says, have nothing to do with it. The English translation is actually supplied a verb, so it'll make sense in English. The Greek doesn't even have a verb, and the idea is, don't even have anything to do. Don't even think about competing with one another or trying to impress one another. Again, let's be self-evaluative. I don't want to talk about church to church, one church comparing itself to another, or maybe a different, um, just look outside the walls. Let's look at our church. What sorts of things might a single church compete over? Membership. Membership. What else? Money. I have this ministry that's very near to my heart. Why isn't that funded? Don't you care? Don't you people get it? These people over here, they have a legitimate need and there is a competition over money. What other sorts of things might a church compete over within itself? Time. Time. What sorts of things might church members do to impress one another? Oh boy, you name it. How you dress, what you drive, how long you've been in the church, whether you get recognized or not. All these things lurk inside the human heart. The people who think they were born to be kings or queens themselves. They're all in rivalry with each other. Paul says don't have anything to do with it. Verse 4 again, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in, oh boy, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. My goodness. That means that in a truly Christian encounter, two Christians come together, and I'm looking, my first look is to see what might be better for you. As I'm going to show you, I don't forget myself. In fact, I can't. But I'm looking out for your interests before I look at my own. Verse 4 makes that clear. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I love how precise and accurate the Bible is to human nature. Look carefully at verse 4. Does it tell you to always forget your own interests? Nope. It acknowledges that you will always keep your own interests in mind. Do you see that? Let each of you look not only to his own interest. Self-preservation, self-protection, that's built in. Paul doesn't have to challenge them to that. I don't have to be reminded to look out for me. 
The Christian grace is not self-forgetfulness, but the considered choice to put you ahead of me. And imagine a body, imagine a group where four generations from every kind of walk of life and every kind of human experience, different wounds, different talents, different income levels, different experiences, different preferences, which kills so many churches. Many churches die on the hill of preference. Imagine a group across four generations that all love Jesus, and because they love Jesus, their continuous encounters are, I'm going to put you ahead of me and remember that Jesus is in charge of both of us. What might that church look like? That'll be amazing. It won't mean that decisions aren't made. It won't mean that sometimes hard choices won't be present, but it will be the closest thing to heaven on earth that this world will ever see. Because you'll see people that have absolutely no reason to love each other or even be together continually putting in consideration others ahead of themselves. And it's the most beautiful thing. And Paul says in verse 3 that all of that happens because of humility. Man, that's tough. See, Paul in writing this has already lost the audience of the ancient world. In the Greco-Roman world, humility was not a virtue. Humility was a slave trait. The idea of humility comes from humiliation that others impose on you. It's not anything that you would choose. If the Western world esteems humility and abhors pride for any reason, there's only one reason for that. It's Jesus. He made the difference. People who deny God will esteem humility, and it's because of the Spirit of Christ and the difference it's made on in the entire world, especially here in the West, Paul says, in humility, what I want you to do is look not only for your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If I'm continually looking out for your interests, and I consider you ahead of myself, and you do the same for me, you and I are going to have a beautiful relationship, because I won't insist on my kingship, and I won't be subjected to your insistence on your own. And then comes this amazing passage, the one I can't get my little mind around. Paul's going to tell them that the only reason this is possible is because they have already been given an example of that being done. And it was Jesus. And what follows is one of the richest passages in the entire New Testament. It's the high point of this whole letter. It's so rich, in fact, that some Bible translators have decided that this is actually not Paul's original writing, but it was probably a Christian hymn. How many of you have, in the Bible you have printed in front of you, have it printed, those next few verses down to verse 11, have it printed so that it's indented? About a third of you. What that printing choice shows is that the translators looked at this language and found it so majestic, so poetic, so rhythmic, and with such beautifully chosen words, they said, this isn't just Paul writing anymore, this is a Christian hymn. When Christians in the first century came together, this is what they sang. Not every Bible has it because we can't be sure of that, but it doesn't matter. What they sing is extraordinary. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, members, deacons, pastors of the Philippian church, choose this mindset. 
Adopt this attitude which was given to you in Christ, which was shown to you by Christ, and here we go, climbing the heights. And what I want you to see is the heights of this truth actually depend upon the depth of Christ's humiliation. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does that mean? The word form there means actually the exact nature. Some translations say it that way. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though having the nature of God. Forming this particular little Greek word does not have to do with appearance. It has to do with essence. It has to do with Christ's very nature. And this is one of the clearest examples and clearest statements of who Jesus is. This says simply, Jesus has always existed as God. His very nature, who He is in His essence, is deity itself. John said it simply in John 1, verse 1, when he begins to tell us about the earthly life of Jesus, he actually starts in heaven. He starts in eternity past by saying this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, do you know the rest of it? The Word was God. Who is Jesus? Jesus is in His very nature God. But look at His mindset, look at His attitude who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. What does that mean? That means that Jesus did not jealously guard his privilege. He cannot divest himself of his nature. You are human by nature. Your behavior, your attitudes may change, but you cannot divest yourself of your humanity. Jesus cannot divest himself of deity. What he can do, and what this passage says he did, is he renounced the privileges, the glory, the protections that attended his very nature. We sing about it at Christmas. There's a little song called, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which has this pregnant little phrase. We sing, mild he lay his glory by. What does that mean? There was a time in human history where Jesus, God, who existed from all eternity and who John goes on to say made everything that was made, so much so that nothing that was made was created without him. At a specific moment of the Father's choosing, Jesus in obedience set not his nature, not his deity aside, but its privilege, its protections. He did not jealously guard all the privileges that came with being deity, and here's how he did it. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. This phrase, made himself nothing, some of your translations will say he emptied himself. That's a good translation, but you need to understand what it means, and the rest of the verse explains exactly what Paul's talking about. What it's saying is that Jesus poured himself out, and it's not that he poured out his deity and emptied himself of it. It's actually the miracle of Christmas. Jesus took his deity and poured it into humanity. John explains it like this, the Word became flesh, and dwelt, tabernacled, set up his tent, this frail human frame that can suffer and thirst 
and be betrayed and be abused and died, He dwelt among us and we saw His glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father. It's the most amazing thing in the world. Jesus didn't renounce His deity. He can't. He poured His deity into humanity. And you and I cannot. This is where my mind stops. Because I can read those phrases and I can understand those concepts, but I cannot begin to imagine the humility of that because all I've ever been and all I ever can be is human. That's my nature. And the Bible story is that not you will ever stop being human, but rather you will be given a glorified body to live in a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, God is going to wrap up the story just as He started it. Perfect people in perfect bodies enjoying Him forever. That's destiny, but this is all I've ever known, so I don't find this humbling at all. I find this normal. I find this good. I enjoy running. I enjoy going out to the ocean and getting tossed around by the waves sometimes. But Jesus, Paul is saying, the Creator, the one who was God Himself, who was there with God in the beginning, the Creator was cradled by human hands that He Himself made. In His humanity, He grew and He experienced more wisdom and He learned one day who God was, the God that He as God had always been with. In His humanity, He someday grew to appreciate And he consciously obeyed, so much so that Hebrews tells me that Jesus learned obedience through tears. And the purpose of all of that was loving you and forgiving you. Because Hebrews also tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. There's that one person of Jesus in both natures. God and man, 100% God, 100% man, all for the sake of my salvation and yours. Because Paul goes on to say the, re, the way that Jesus humbled himself is not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but consciously emptying himself, making himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and that's not enough. And being found in human form, which was humbling to start with, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. path for Jesus goes straight down because He chose it. It's the most stunning thing in all of the Bible. I can't begin to fathom how much humility that took. Something else to think about. There was a moment when Jesus became flesh. The astonishing thing is you continue to read the Bible and you look in Revelation and you see the final state. Jesus remains in human flesh. That's why you'll be able to see him someday. Someday, as Thomas did, you will be able to see the wounds that the cross laid upon him. In other words, there was a time when Jesus existed as the Son of God, as God does in spirit. And at another moment, he chose consciously the humiliation of becoming a man. And not a kingly man, not a man to be served, but a servant to many who came not to serve, he said, but to be served and to give his life a ransom through many, and that ransom lay through a Roman cross, a concept so horrifying that it was literally not mentioned in polite Roman culture. Polite Romans did not mention the cross. They used euphemisms like the unhappy tree to refer to the cross because it was so shameful for any human being to die there. And Jesus did all that, Paul says, for this single reason, 
Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. There's his resurrection. There's his ascension. There's his ability to save. He did all of that for sinful, wicked people like me who would be king who would run my own show. Here's the danger of this passage. Theologians love this passage so much, and I love theology, and it was my favorite subject in seminary. And I became as close as a normal student can to one of the theologians. So I appreciate how much they have to offer us, but the danger is to be lost in the second half of this passage that, all, that I've explained to you as poorly as I can as best I could, but still poor, and forget this point. The point of this rich theological passage is to remind ordinary Christians of the self-chosen humiliation of Jesus so that we will be humble like He is. See, the point of this passage is this. If Jesus means anything to us, we're going to stick together to spread the gospel by choosing to humble ourselves for each other the way Jesus humbled Himself for us. See, in the ocean of this truth, my pride can't survive. Because I encounter my pride, I'm just being honest with you now, I encounter my pride at every self-reflective conscious moment. If I'm really paying attention, I'm thinking about me all the time. Even in the middle of preaching, as humbling as that is, when things are going well, sometimes I'll think to myself, I'm doing pretty good. And a great God in heaven must say, are you kidding me? Even now, in speaking of my son, your savior, and your sin, you're looking back at yourself and admiring your work, how much God has to deal with. That's why he's such a good savior. That's why this passage is so rich. He's saying to the Philippian church, listen, if you found any encouragement of Christ, if his love has meant any comfort to you at all, if you've ever tasted the Holy Spirit, if you've found affection and sympathy in Christ and in fellowship with one another, here's what I want you to do. Complete my joy in this prison. Make me as happy as I know I can be by having the same heart, feeling, and mind. Keeping one goal in mind, the spreading of the gospel. See, what makes me happy with this church is when I see people tenaciously killing off their own preferences and putting the gospel ahead of their own ideas, their own agendas, their own way of seeing things, and humbly saying, it's not the way I would do it, but praise the Lord, someone fell in love with Jesus and was saved. Oh my goodness, I can't tell you how happy that makes me. And that, that's what Paul is pleading for, and he's saying, Jesus has done all this for you, now you do this for each other. Jesus thought of you first, church. We should live thinking of one another first because Christian unity can only come through Christ-like humility. What makes an offering of time and money generous at a church is people putting Jesus and others ahead of themselves. If we put ourselves first, church will wither just like that. If all the kings and queens retreat to their own kingdoms and forget the one true king, Jesus, stop putting him on the throne and our, the others ahead of ourselves, the church can die in a generation. 
It can die in a week. But if you will remember that you have this great Savior who fought past all your pride and defiance and humbled himself to death when you weren't even looking for him or didn't even know he existed so that one day you would bow your knee before him and call him your Savior and your Lord, as Paul says, someday everyone will do. Some lovingly, some in loyalty, some only in fearful acknowledgement that He really is everything He claimed to be. When we do that, we'll be united as one body. We'll keep our heart and mind on spreading His good news, not ourselves, not our own self-interest, not the way we would do it if we were given the choice. No, we will put ourselves at the feet of Jesus, and if we're together killing off our pride in the presence of this Savior, there's going to be peace here. There's going to be unity. There's going to be purpose, and people are going to get saved as they meet the one, the only one that deserves the name Savior. Let's close by praying about it. Can I give you a minute to yourself with Jesus? If you're really, really honest, you've been putting yourself first. I have, I do, I just told you. Could you talk to your Savior about that for a second? Does your pride still live in the presence of His humility? If so, look to Him. If preferences have gotten in the way of purpose, tell Him about it. Ask His forgiveness. If there's been a generational rivalry with you in the church, You felt a little overlooked. Talk to him about it. Ask him to unite you to himself and promise him that as you walk your way through your life, your marriage, your parenting, your friendships, the life in this church, that you'll look to the interests of others along with and ahead of your own. Lord, our best hope, our best plan is to do exactly what you say and to humble ourselves for one another as you humbled yourself for us. I so quickly become king in my own heart, in my own understanding. Forgive me. Give my brothers and sisters who are seeking you in prayer a moment of true, genuine humility before you so that they may seek that forgiveness and find it. Unite cross point, Lord, one heart, one goal, that Jesus would be known and that people would call him Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, 